Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode is brought to you by Merck Research. MerckResearch.com, M-E-R-K. I read these reports on a regular basis and can say that I get a lot of value out of them. Merck Research is different from other research, which usually just cherry picks all positive or all negative charts and then falls into the trap of confirmation bias. Merck Research provides an intellectually consistent approach by going through a consistent set of relevant data and then putting it through a consistent set of frameworks, which is then summarized in a checklist and in a concise written summary. Their monthly economic and market data review provides an excellent overview of the macro landscape. It's all compiled in one place and easy to interpret chart books with written analysis. And now listeners of this podcast can take advantage of a special offer and get a three-month free trial to Merck Research. Simply visit the website merckresearch.com forward slash contrarian. That's Merck spelled M-E-R-K. Or you can log on to merckresearch.com, sign up for a regular subscription, and enter the code contrarian at checkout to take advantage of this free offer. Now on to today's episode. I am here with Deepak Gurnani, managing partner of Bursar Investments, and we are going to talk about merger arbitrage. Deepak, first of all, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, great to have you. And it's interesting because merger arbitrage, this is something that is, as we'll see, is very much independent of major market movement. It's one of these strategies that many strategies claim to not have any affiliation with market moves and be to be kind of independent of that and to produce true alpha. But merger arbitrage actually does. And we're in an interesting environment now with merger activity. You have this paper that you're kind enough to send me, the environment for merger arbitrage in 2021. And from the look of it, there are a lot of mergers that are coming through. Uh, We've seen that this year, 
But there are also some concerns. And just now, this week, or, or last week, rather, Lena Khan was confirmed as FTC chair. She is known as a big tech critic. We can speak about her later, but I thought from the beginning, maybe you can just give us a primer on how this merger arbitrage works, because it's, it's not simple. So go ahead. Sure. Uh, no, thank you. No, it's a pleasure to, to join you in the discussion. Merger arbitrage is, is actually one of our core strategies. And as, as you uh, correctly pointed out, it is uncorrelated uh, with equities and bonds over a cycle. So we have uh, at Worser, we have implemented what we believe is a fairly unique, systematic, but fundamentally driven merger arbitrage strategy. A vast majority of uh, merger arbitrage managers tend to be fundamental managers. So our strategy also uses an active uh, fundamental investment style, which is based on uh, 20 plus years of experience in merger arbitrage by, uh, for me and my partner, Ludger Henschel. And uh, we combine that with a systematic process and technology. So I think what makes us unique is sort of combining a a, a process that relies on solid fundamental and economic theory. We combine that with sophisticated machine learning techniques, which we use to process vast amounts of information that we store uh, in our proprietary merger database. So my colleague uh, Ludger Henschel and I actually wrote a paper back in 2009, making a case for a such a strategy, which combines systematic and fundamental approaches into merger arbitrage. So at the most basic level, merger arbitrage really capitalizes on the spread between a company's current share price and its final uh, acquisition price that has been offered. Uh, so there typically tends to be a spread. The spread is, you could think of it as compensation for providing liquidity uh, when the merger is announced, as well as bearing risk that the merger may terminate and may not close successfully. So to successfully implement a merger arbitrage strategy, it does require an investor to differentiate between attractive mergers, mergers that will successfully close, mergers that will actually get a competing bid uh, or a positive amendment. I would love to talk about that a little bit further and differentiate that from the less attractive mergers where Maybe the spreads are tight or worse that the mergers could terminate. So we spend a lot of time in analyzing that uh, using our, our process. And uh, we essentially add alpha by increasing our exposure to deals where we think returns are going to be attractive, either spreads are attractive, we are pretty confident that the deals will close or there will be a competing bid and reducing exposure to deals that we think will terminate or the spreads are tight, right? So for example, one of the most important forecasts that we make is whether the deal will succeed or will terminate. On right. average, on average, 10% of mergers tend to fail. That's right? so one in 10. Uh, we, when we classify a merger as uh, low risk, typically the failure rates that we see are one to 2%. I wish it was zero, but it is one to 2%. And, and uh, we overweight those deals in the portfolio. On the other hand, deals that we classify as high risk uh, have failure rates of as high as 35%. Again, I wish it was much higher, but 35% for the risky deals and one to 2% for the safer deals, that's a very attractive spread. And we use that uh, successfully as a part. As compared to that, the accepted market sort of uh, wisdom 
is that the spread of the deal reflects all of the risk associated with the deal, right? And we strongly disagree with that. Uh, we have done some analysis. We've actually published some research in that area, which is a topic for separate discussion, that the spreads are at best an average indicator, right? Mm. Adding value through analyzing the deal. We certainly do think we add a lot of value. So how do we do that, right? So we do use several alternative data sources. Uh, we literally track real-time merger data. So when a merger is announced, uh, it, within seconds, as the news wires pick up, uh, it comes into our database, which are using natural language processing to read the news and convert that into determining that a merger has been announced. We have a proprietary database of over 4,000 deals going back to 2000, where we store both fundamental data uh, you know, on the target and the acquirer company, as well as market data. And we then apply machine learning uh, to this proprietary database. So all the fundamental ideas that is built on fundamental and economic theory are then tested using sophisticated machine learning techniques to a actual database of 4,000 plus deals, and uh, which also then incorporates a deal, whether the deal has been announced, what kind of valuations are there? Is it what kind of premiums have been paid? How does the deal compare with other deals in the market? Uh, as well as regulatory antitrust considerations. Right. So all of that combined with electronic trading is really what makes the merger arbitrage strategy unique. And uh, we have been uh, trading merger arbitrage at Bursar uh, since uh, early 2015 uh, with a live track record. Uh, obviously, my partner and I, as I mentioned, Ludger Henschel and I and several of our other team members have experience in merger arbitrage going back uh, several decades. Very interesting. That's a whole lot of stuff you just gave us to unpack. So one of my first questions here is that you said that the your NLP and, and your machine learning kind of parses the news of the merger. Do you mean the news stories or do you mean the announcements by the companies? Because as you know, as I know from being in the news business, there's often a pretty big gulf in between those two. So uh, we typically, we will invest in announced mergers. Right. So we are not predicting uh, in that regard, even though we may have a view, but we are not predicting which company will acquire uh, which company. Right? That's, a, that's a separate strategy. Uh, so our, our process starts with as soon as the merger is announced. Right, by the companies. So, so by not, the companies, right, correct. Mm -hmm. It's by the companies, right? But uh, uh, typically, so let's say the merger, why is that important? Because when the merger is announced, let's say the merger is announced 45 minutes to one hour, let's say, before the market opens. Right? in the US, which is typically where a lot of the merger data comes in, could be a couple of hours as well. Uh, we use that time to run all of our analysis and we are ready with our orders before the market opens. Mm. And that gives us an edge from an mm -hmm. execution perspective, right? While the rest of the uh, uh, merger uh, managers uh, or investors are still trying to figure out uh, what is going on and studying it, we have, we, we have got an edge in getting the data early, running it through a database, applying our machine learning techniques, and we are ready with our forecast right. mm -hmm. of how, how do we think the deal will trade, whether it will close, all the different forecasts that we do. We are typically ready before the market opens. Uh, we are trading when liquidity is fairly high and spreads are very attractive. And uh, we revise our forecast as the day unfolds. Very interesting. And so I assume that a lot of what you go through is the merger announcement itself from the companies, because a lot of times I've, I've covered this a little bit. 
in, in the past. Actually, it wasn't in a past life. I hate it when people say that. But anyway, but the um, and the, the announcements sometimes, in fact, often specify what regulatory authorities need to sign off on the deal. And the more there are, the more complex it is, and the more likely it is that it could at least be extended, if, if not be derailed outright. So is that one of the major things that you look at? It's one of the several, right? So mm -hmm. as soon as the merger is announced, uh, we are we have a equity database of single name equities for almost every equity traded in the world. So every so when the merger is announced, uh, yes, from the merger we do need the terms of the merger, right? Sure. What kind of if it is a cash deal or a stock deal? What kind of uh, uh, price is being offered? Hedge ratios and so on. Uh, but in terms of we already have balance sheet, uh, cash flow data on the companies, both the target and the acquirer going back several decades, right? Or, or st since the company has been, uh, since the inception of the company. And uh, we use all of that information to determine our forecast, right? So you spoke about regulatory and antitrust, right? So uh, we do based on the, we do take into account the size of the target versus the acquirer. If it is a much bigger company acquiring a smaller company, is it a company with equals? What kind of product lines do they have? What kind of overlap? Uh, even the regulators uh, from an antitrust perspective do look at quantitative measures. So we replicate those quantitative measures internally. So we have data on the underlying companies ready. As soon as the merger is announced, what we need is the additional information that we need is the uh, is the terms of the deal, right? Mm -hmm. Which we don't have until those are announced. Yeah. But all the other historical data is there. As you rightly said, also, the number of jurisdictions uh, also is related to the size of the deals, right? So right. if it's a, it's a mega merger uh, of one of the larger deals, clearly there are more jurisdictions involved. Depending upon the industry or the sector, uh, the regulatory uh, environment is different as well. So all of that gets taken into account in determining uh, and uh, determining what we think is the, uh, is the probability or the assessment mm -hmm. of whether the merger will successfully complete or terminate. Very interesting. How much does the time to completion factor into this? Do you express your views with just vanilla equities or do you uh, involve in any options trading as well, which then would there would be then a time premium? So uh, we do uh, we do make an estimate. So as soon as the deal is announced, uh, again, we using our uh, algorithms, we are able to estimate what do we think, how much time do we think it will the company will take to complete the transaction, right? So based on again historical data of how other similar companies in similar industries, similar sizes uh, would do. Now we do adjust that. So as uh, you know, because of COVID, there were on average delays of about thirty days taking place. So we factor that, we measure that and incorporate that. So we have a pretty good idea of the duration. Now the actual duration uh, will vary we, and we know that. We view the duration. So although we trade single equities to one of your questions, uh, we do use information from the options market. Uh, however, as a strategy, we do trade single name equities. We do not trade options, but we do view longer duration as increasing the risk associated with the deal. So if we expect the deal to close in five months and it's taking seven or eight months, clearly something is not working, right? So mm -hmm. even if the companies are not disclosing completely as to what is going on, uh, we are actually lightening up our positioning uh, mm -hmm. as it takes longer than what we expect. So again, it's good for, it is important for us to 
have a, an, a, an accurate forecast of the duration because if it takes longer, uh, even if we don't have options in the portfolio where clearly it has a bigger direct impact, we think the risk goes up in the uh, of the deal terminating. And we have been proven right in more cases than not. You mentioned you have this database of mergers going back 20 years. You mentioned that the average failure rate for announced deals is 10%. But you say in this paper that there was a big spike in late 2008 and early 2009, as can be expected, in the number of deals that were uh, shuttered, that, that were derailed for a whole bunch of reasons. And that you point out that that, was, that caused a big spike in the, in the averages and that that was a kind of an outlier for the last 20 years. Based on that, do you think it's kind of safe to say that it's a pretty good environment to bet on these mergers to be completed right now? So uh, we do believe that uh, structurally, uh, the failure rates have come down, right? So 2020, 2008, as you clearly pointed out, uh, merger rates, uh, termination rates went to 20% uh, for a number of reasons, right? Uh, uh, market pressures, uh, higher volatility in the markets, but also difficult credit conditions and so on. We were pleasantly surprised that in 2020 and in the first quarter of 2020, and in fact, for most of 2020, failure rates have continued to be low less than historical averages, uh, trending to about 5%. And in the US, they have actually come down even further. So we do ask ourselves, right, why is that the case? Clearly, the benign market conditions is one reason, and that does make fit. But we do think also there are structural reasons. The merger agreements, especially in the US, are getting tighter. So uh, as an example, several merger agreements, when we studied them in detail during the pandemic, actually had MAC or material adverse change clauses, which prohibited the acquirer to walk away from the deal in case there is a global pandemic. So these were deals done before COVID, uh, but they had provisions where uh, that a global pandemic was not a reason for the acquirer to be able to walk away, right? So the lawyers have, have, have done a really good job over the years in tightening Certainly, again, I am I'm speaking here for, certainly for the U.S., which is the majority of the deal flow. And so we do think structurally uh, uh, that uh, the merger termination rates have come down, will come down, although they will be cyclical over time. And that's where uh, we add alpha, right? So we look at the environment and we can make an assessment. And we do think it's a benign environment and uh, having low termination rate is certainly one of the reasons. And we, there are other reasons we'll, we'll talk about, but certainly one of the reasons why we think it's an attractive environment uh, for merger arbitrage. Yeah, that kind of brings up the question here about the environment and the political environment, at least where antitrust is concerned. And, you know, we had the Trump presidency for four years, which is obviously very business friendly. Biden, whatever his policies, uh, some would say, probably rightly are still business friendly, but he did appoint this person, Lena Khan, to be FTC chair. FTC, of course, one of the two major agencies that signs off on deals in the US, the other being the DOJ. And she's known as a big tech critic. We've seen in Europe some now some news this week about Google over antitrust concerns. There are there's a lot of talk, a lot of views that, you know, technology, especially these big tech companies, they're too big for their own good. They're going to be broken up, blah, 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 blah. And a lot of the MA deals that are announced, also going back to some of your research most recently have been in the tech space. Is all of that a concern or not? So uh, 
every time uh, there is a change in administration, uh, certainly in the U.S., it does add to the uncertainty, right? So there is always this question raised, right, in terms of how will it impact? Will it have an impact on terminations? Will it impact certain industries uh, more than the others, right? And and I'll touch specifically on on the technology part that you mentioned as well, right? So. Uh, the short answer based on our work is that going back in time, uh, we do not see difference in, uh, in the way the strategy performs uh, based on an administration or change. does not mean that it doesn't add uncertainty at that point in time, but in terms of the actual outcomes, uh, we find that our process and our prediction models are pretty uh, are, are, uh, work as well in different uh, administration environments, certainly. Right? We do get asked that, and we, we have looked at it very closely. Mm-hmm. Now, the, uh, on the second aspect of the impact uh, on, uh, or, or the, about the, the, the talk about impacting technology uh, very specifically, uh, we have seen, uh, again, uh, our process is uh, monitoring and measuring what is, what is going on. It, does, it, it goes less with the talk and is really reliant on actual outcomes, right? So based on that, we have yet to see a change, right? And, and one could uh, also, it's important that out of, for example, $500 billion worth of deals, mergers that have been announced in the first five months of this year, 70 billion are in technology. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, the highest is industrials at 100 billion, real estate, financials, healthcare. So uh, there are, you know, uh, technology certainly is an important part, right? But just as a sector, we are seeing a very broad-based number of deals, right? Uh, it doesn't mean technology is not important. Of course, it's very important and our process works as well. But we're not just dependent on technology, deals, right? It's, mm-hmm. It is much more broad-based uh, from what we have seen. Mm-hmm. Wow, Deepak, it sounds like you're telling me that politicians are all talk. I would find that so so surprising, but um, at least for this antitrust stuff. But anyway, uh, okay, so I wonder then if when it comes to technology deals, if what you're saying is true, and it seems to play out historically, if there is a bit of a premium, I guess, built into the, the spreads, or maybe it, w- it would be a, a discount when it comes to tech deals that are announced because of these concerns right now about about antitrust. Have you seen that? And is that an opportunity for arbitrage or not? So uh, we we do see that spreads in general uh, are wider than uh, historical averages, right? So when you combine that with unusually low number of failures, again, is a very important part, right? So we have very strong deal activity. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll quote some numbers as well. Uh, uh, along with that, the spreads are wider than uh, uh, average, and that contributes to a very positive environment. Uh, we don't think it's it uh, the the spreads being wider uh, to the extent that they reflect the uncertainty. Certainly, right? We think it creates an opportunity because, as I said, what matters is the actual outcome, yeah. right? And so, to the extent that we get wider spreads, they are certainly wider than median. Uh, that's positive for the strategy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. More, more uh, p- potential returns there. Okay. Deepak Grunani, I want to take a short break, allow our sponsors to have a word and then come back and ask you some more questions. If you are a premium subscriber, don't touch the dial. You will not get the break. And to become a premium subscriber, there are various ways to sign up. We have a new Substack, contrarianpod.substack.com. Uh, check that out. And link is in the show notes if you forgot it. 
We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. I need to tell you about Merck Research. MerckResearch.com, M-E-R-K. I read these reports on a regular basis and can absolutely recommend them. Uh, Their research is different. They do not cherry-pick positive or negative charts, nor do they fall into the trap of confirmation bias. They have an intellectually consistent approach. They grew through a consistent set of relevant data, put them through the same consistent set of frameworks, and then summarize the whole thing in a checklist with a concise written summary. And now listeners of this podcast can take advantage of a special offer, which is a three-month free trial to Merck Research. Simply visit the website MerckResearch.com, sign up for one of the subscriptions, and enter the code CONTRARIAN at checkout to take advantage of this limited offer. That's MerckResearch.com, M-E-R. Okay. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Here with Deepak Karnani of Bursar Investment Management, and we are talking about M and A. Deepak, this is the section of the show where we ask our guests some more uh, personal questions—not too personal, but just about their background, how they came to invest, and how they found themselves to arrive at this station in life. So, curious about that: how you got your start, and how things have proceeded for you in the intervening years? Sure. Uh, So I started, uh, I have a 34-year career in investments. Uh, The first six years of that was with Citigroup, uh, initially in India and then at multiple locations in Europe. Uh, The next 20 years was with InvestCorp, an alternatives-only manager where I was the CIO and the chief investment officer and the head of the hedge funds group uh, based here in New York. I was with InvestCorp for 20 years. I was one of the founders of the hedge fund group uh, at InvestCorp and also a member of the management committee. And while I was at InvestCorp uh, uh, focusing on hedge funds, where uh, I and several of the partners who work with me today worked extensively on uh, quantitative investing and research associated with that, including merger arbitrage. At its peak, I was responsible for a portfolio of about $8 billion with global investors. Uh, I retired from InvestCorp after 20 years. I had a very successful career there. Uh, and uh, set up Versor Investments with uh, like-minded partners in uh, late 2013. So I've been here at Versor Investments since 2013. I am the managing partner, and along with uh, Ludger Henschel, Ludger and I uh, focus on the investment side of the business. Very cool. All right. So this whole idea, this whole back to merger arb, and you were talking before about some structural issues that have you confidence still in, in the space. And I, I'm just wondering though, before that, if there was a reason that you're on the allocation side over in InvestCorp, uh, 
And if there's any reason why you chose merger ARB as opposed to a different strategy, if you, indeed you do think this is the most you know, non-correlated type of strategy, which has the most ability to produce alpha in, in all conditions or, or that. Sure. So as a firm, uh, Worser has two business lines, hedge funds and risk premium. Mm -hmm. uh, within hedge funds, merger arbitrage is a part uh, within hedge funds. We also run global macro and trend following strategy. So okay. what is common to all the strategies that we run is uh, a focus on uh, alternative investment strategies. Uh, and uh, just in terms of size, uh, roughly 50% of our assets are in merger arbitrage. So uh, as, a, as per our latest SEC filings, we reported 1.8 billion in regulatory AUM. This was at the end of 2020. Uh, we have grown since then. And uh, the current AUM in merger arbitrage is about 900 million. So in addition to that, as I said, we also have global macro trend following, uh, and we also have multi-risk premium strategies. So it's a broad set of uh, strategies that okay. we offer. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. All right, so let's talk more about the merger environment here. And um, what other structural issues can you, you mentioned before? Can you, can you tell us about this? And yeah, what, what else are you seeing in this area? So uh, we have all seen the deal flow has picked up. Mm -hmm. uh, right? So uh, I want to put that in perspective and provide some numbers just to give you a sense of how strong the deal flow has been. Right? So we did see deal flow reduce in early 2020 due to COVID. There was uncertainty around growth and uh, clearly how to value the companies. However, as the market volatility uh, declined and the investment bankers quickly adjusted to remote negotiation, we saw deal activity pick up, right? So to put, we mentioned several numbers in the papers. Uh, I have obviously more up-to-date uh, data as well. So for example, there were 100 deals announced in the second half of 2020. And uh, that was comparable to the prior years where merger activity was very strong. To put it in perspective, in the first half of 2021, in, in the first five months, 150 deals are now. So 150 deals in the first five months versus 100 deals. In terms of dollar value, $500 billion of deals worth in the second half of 2020 and $500 billion worth of deals in the first five months of 2021. And uh, uh, second half of 2020 was higher than the corresponding periods in 17. 2017, 2018, and 2019, which was rated as having very robust merger activity, yeah. right? So now why is that happening, right? So clearly uh, there is significant cash availability. So corporate America has been conserving cash during the COVID crisis. Again, our analysis shows bottom up. We looked at every literally listed company in the US were able to measure how much cash they have on the balance sheet. Uh, and uh, we see that cash levels are at the highest level this century, mm. so since 2000. So as conditions normalize, some of that cash has been used and will be used for acquisitions. Mm. Similarly, the dry, the dry powder with P funds is also at highest levels. So when you combine that, there's a lot of cash available. And due to COVID-19, uh, there is more differentiation between weaker and stronger players in each industry. So it gives an opportunity for the stronger companies to acquire some of the weaker companies, and which is the reason why we are seeing deal flow 
very broad across several sectors. It's not dominated by just one or two sectors. Right? And that is, so for the foreseeable future, we do see uh, merger activity continuing to be robust. Obviously, there will be some cyclicality associated with that, but we do think that these are some of the structural reasons why merger activity will continue to be strong. We already spoke about why we think terminations will be lower than uh, what we have historical seen. So it does make for a very attractive environment. Are there any particular sectors, we touched on this at the outset, and you mentioned financials and such, um, that are seeing more uh, activity than others? And that you think so, could increase even more maybe? So the, in terms of the dollar values, industrials are at 100 billion out of the mm -hmm. 500 billion, uh, followed by real estate is at 80 billion, technology at 70, financial, healthcare at 70, financials at 40 billion, communication services at 30 billion, right? So again, we are less focused on sort of predicting which sectors. We are seeing yeah. what we are encouraged is there is very broad uh, sense of uh, uh, you know opportunity in terms of deal flow. We expect that to continue. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, yeah. Are there a lot of are these a lot of cross border deals, or are they mostly domestic here in the U.S.? How's that played out? So there are there are some there are some uh, cross border deals. Uh, we do tend to view them as more risky sure. uh, than domestic deals, but there are, there are a significant number of uh, of domestic deals as well. The cross border deals do get a lot more of the news, yeah. uh, but in terms of the deal flow, uh, they are not that large a portion uh, okay. of the deal flow. Typically. Has that increased or decreased over time over the last couple of years? You think? Uh, uh, I think it it, it uh, there hasn't been a noticeable change in okay. what we do see. All right. You mentioned, you talked before about competing bids and how competitive are these deals and how likely is it that a lot of these deals will see a competing bidder come in and, and drive up the price? So a less appreciated uh, aspect of merger arbitrage is this improved offers and competing bids. Mm. The frequency of competing bids or improved offers is roughly twice that of deal failures. Mm. So you know, one has to spend at least as much time on predicting the, the which deals will get a improved offer or a competing bid. Uh, again, we have very solid economic and fundamental theory behind uh, looking at valuations, looking at kinds of industries and so on, and come up with a forecast of what would happen. Uh, we did see improved level of, uh, of, of unusually high levels of improved offers and competing bid in the second half of 2020, uh, and that has continued into the first half. Again, to put it in perspective, the number of improved offers or competing bids that we saw in the first quarter of 2021, the second quarter is not complete as yet, exceeded any six-month period that we have seen historically since we started. So we have seen an unprecedented number of improved offers and competing bids uh, driven by Again, the post-COVID environment, the companies have cash, they are looking to deploy, uh, strategic buyers are looking to gain an edge in the post-COVID environment, and uh, valuations in the markets are on the higher side, certainly, since the deals were announced, so it, it makes for a very exciting environment. And we do have forecasts where we explicitly forecast for each company, and uh, a big part, you know, we have had very strong returns this year, and uh, a, a big component of that has been uh, uh, returns from improved offers and competing bids. Wow, very interesting. I wonder if uh, you can give any advice for anybody who's listening to this who wants to get into merger ARB. Um, do you have any advice other than don't bother, you don't have the computer power, you don't have the resources? 
Um, or is it really something that's more mostly done by professional traders, experienced professionals, or is it something that somebody with a little less experience can get involved with? So I, I, I would uh, I would certainly say that to to gain an edge, uh, to gain an alpha uh, in merger arbitrage does require experience. Mm. Uh, we do believe that it does require investment in uh, in uh, technology and data combined with uh, experience and uh, in the in the merger arbitrage strategy. So, so again, to put to let me sort of elaborate a little bit further uh, using an example, right? So. Prior to 2008, if let's say there were 100 mergers announced, uh, as an investor, you came in and put in a dollar in each of the 100 mergers, you could actually get very attractive returns right? Mm -hmm. prior to 2008. In the last several years, uh, an attempt to do that will actually get very mediocre returns. Right? If you come in and said that, look, I'm not going to differentiate uh, between the mergers, I'm going to put a dollar in each, uh, the returns will be significantly lower. right? So another way of saying that is that it's very critical to differentiate between mergers that will do well and mergers that will, or the mergers that will terminate. And to do that, to get that edge does require experience and does require significant investments in uh, uh, building the database that we have and, and making the prediction models. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Cool, um, all right, is there anything else I should ask you, Deepa? Well, I think we did have, uh, I think we pretty much covered all the points. I would just uh, mention that uh, we do think it's a it's an attractive environment. We saw uh, that uh, when spreads widened in 2008, uh, it was followed by a period of above average returns for considerable, for a number of years. Uh, we made that prediction internally and to some of our investors who took us up on that when we saw the spreads widen in the first uh, quarter of 2020. Uh, we are pleased that we have seen a pickup and we are continue to forecast a strong environment given the deal flow, low levels of termination and high levels of uh, competing wins. Very cool. Maybe in closing, um, and uh, if uh, this isn't, I know that you guys are obviously a, a registered fund, a private placement, so this may not be appropriate. And if not, I'll take it out. But do you have places where people can find out more about you, a, a basic website? Or such, or is that is it not worth getting into that? Yeah, so we do have uh, we do have our website where we publish several of our research papers, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that also provides a, a, a an opportunity for potential investors or folks to learn more about us. They can get in touch with us through the website, and uh, uh, we'll be certainly happy to have uh, have discussions on more specifics of what we do and our offerings. And what's that URL? Uh, Worser Invest, Worser Investments. If you just go do that, it will come up as a, a cool. website. Wonderful. And I will put that in the show notes as well. Very good. Deepak Gurnani, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. We thank you all for listening and look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.